Hello everyone, a very warm welcome to the LSE for this online event which forms part of this year's LSE Festival, Shaping the Post-Covid World. A week of virtual events free and open to everyone about the direction the world could and should take after the Covid crisis and how social science research can shape that. For any of you in the audience who are Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is at LSE Festival. Uh, this online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast uh, subject to any technical difficulties. And my name is Nicola Lacey. I'm School Professor of Law, Gender and Social Policy at the LSE. And it's my very, very great pleasure to be chairing the event uh, this evening. A very brief introduction. Um, we're all painfully aware that the COVID-19 pandemic has affected everyone individually, collectively. But we also know very, very starkly now that it has affected some communities very much more than others. And today we've been lucky enough to assemble a really fantastic panel of experts to discuss the gendered dynamics of COVID-19 and gaps in preparedness, response and indeed future recovery plans in terms of the impact of COVID on women. Women in particular have been sidelined by governments, uh, not just in this country, but globally, uh, as well as here. Just two weeks ago, a new report uh, by the MPs in the Women and Equalities Committee, one of whom, Belle, we are lucky enough to have here with us this evening, uh, found that the UK's policies have been repeatedly skewed towards men and failed to consider the labour market and caring inequalities faced by women. There are many avenues we could take, obviously, in our discussion uh, this evening, but given that it's UK Budget Day. Uh, we are going to focus primarily on the economic impact of these inequalities. So I'm very delighted to welcome our panel to LSE today. And I'm going to introduce them all together just to, to make the, the event run in a more sort of seamless way. So I'll introduce them in the order in which they're going to speak. And first of all, we're very lucky to have Marianne Stevenson here with us this evening. Marianne is the director of the Women's Budget Group. She's been a very busy woman today. Uh, and she's worked for women's and uh, equality and human rights for over 20 years as a campaigner, a researcher and a trainer. After Marianne has spoken, uh, we will turn to Mandu Reid, who has been leader of the Equality, uh, Women's Equality Party since April 2019, and is also the party's candidate for the 2021 mayoral election. Then third, we come to my colleague Claire Wenham, who is Associate Professor of Global Health Policy here at LSE. She specialises in global health security, the politics and policy of pandemic preparedness and outbreak response. More recently, she's been examining the role of women in epidemics and associated policy. And then finally, but very much not least, we turn to Belle Ribeiro-Addy, who is the Labour MP for her home constituency of Streatham. Belle is a dedicated feminist, anti-racist and trade unionist who currently sits on the uh, Women and Equalities Committee in Parliament. 
Now, as usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to our speakers throughout the event. And to do so, please, would you use the Q&A feature on the bottom of your screens? And uh, questions will then be passed to me, and I'm going to pose as many as possible as we as we have time for, and I will put them in groups and give the panel a chance to to respond in batches. So, without further ado, and with enormous thanks to all of the panelists, and a further welcome to you, I'd like to hand over to Mary Ann. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this event. Um, so I've been asked really to give an immediate response to the budget. Um, and uh, before I do that, I just want to do a, a couple of minutes of context. I know the other speakers will talk about this in much more detail, but just to kind of reinforce what Nicola has said. We know that over the past year, um, women have faced the, the greatest burden of, of social, social and economic impact of COVID. Um, women have done vastly more unpaid care work um, since both schools and nurseries are closed, but also um, more care for older and disabled adults. Um, women are more likely to be working in those sectors that were completely locked down as a result of the pandemic. Um, uh, so high street retail, hospitality, health and beauty and so on. Um, they're more likely to have been furloughed. Um, they're more likely to be living in poverty and have increased debt. Um, and they've also inc experienced increased levels of domestic violence and abuse. So you would expect the budget to address some of those issues. You would expect the budget to recognise that inequality and do something about it. Um, and unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. Um, so I'm going to start with a little bit about what wasn't there. Um, there was nothing in the budget on social care at all. Um, even before the pandemic, we had 1.5 million people in the UK with unmet care needs. We know that number has gone up. We know the number of unpaid carers has increased dramatically over the last year. Um, we know that there are very many um, care homes that are in a situation of crisis where they're worried whether or not they're going to survive over the next year or so. Because understandably, large numbers of people, um, if, they, if they can keep themselves or a loved one out of residential care at the moment, they are. Um, and care homes were already underfunded, which meant they don't have much slack in the system to deal with um, empty beds. Um, and that's, you know, that's a big mistake because um, care could be one of the main ways to actually stimulate the recovery. Our research has shown that investment in care would create 2.7 times as many jobs as the same money invested in construction. Um, so had the government chosen to do something about social care, to invest in care, it wouldn't just be dealing with the care crisis um, and ensuring people who need care are receiving it and ensuring those who are providing unpaid care are maybe able to return to the labour market, it would also be creating jobs and helping um, build the recovery. There was nothing in the budget on childcare either. Um, and again, this is surprising. We're in a situation where 58% of local authorities have warned that they think child, there will be childcare providers closing in their authority area. Um, we know large numbers of women who've been made redundant in the last year said that a lack of childcare was one of the key factors in their redundancy. And again, we know that investment in childcare would be a good way to stimulate the recovery um, and that much of the investment 
would actually be brought back into the treasury in savings and social security as more people are able to go back to work and new jobs are created and in tax receipts. So um, that's a mistake. Um, there were some good things. Extending the, the furlough again um, was, was something that we welcome. And I think it's important to recognise that the furlough scheme has prevented um, widespread unemployment. But if you look at the timing of the furlough, alongside the decision to extend universal credit for another six months, what we're looking at is a situation where the furlough scheme will end at about the point when the universal credit extension will end. So just at the point when more people are going to be needing to claim social security, because we have to accept the fact that even with the furlough scheme and even with the lifting of restrictions, as as the scheme ends, people are going to lose their jobs. You know, there are sectors where um, employers are, are kind of hanging on, trying to carry on paying employees, but won't be able to in the long term. At that very point, um, universal credit is going to fall by £20 a week. Now, the reason the government raised universal credit in the first place a year ago was because it recognised that it wasn't high enough. We have some of the lowest rates of um, social security benefits in, in Europe. Um, and the government realised that it couldn't continue with the rate of universal credit as it was in a pandemic. Well, if it's not good enough in a pandemic, it's not good enough the rest of the time. Our social security system should provide people with enough money to live on, whether or not we're in a pandemic. Um, and so the government missed an opportunity to make that uplift permanent, but also to extend it to the very many people on disability benefits who were claiming benefits before universal credit came in. And they're not yet on universal credit because those people saw no uplift. 75 percent of people who didn't haven't benefited from that are disabled um, people on contributory benefits. Um, we're seeing a gap growing between universal credit and contributory benefits, which aren't means tested. And particularly for women, if they have a, a higher earning partner, contributory benefits may be the only benefits that they're entitled to. They won't be entitled to universal credit because household income will be too high. So there was nothing there. Um, there was an extension of the self-employed um, support scheme. But again, nothing done about the women who um, are losing out from that scheme because they've taken a period of maternity leave um, while during the period that's assessed to see how much money you're entitled to. Um, and both Pregnant and Screwed and Maternity Action have raised this case repeatedly. And the government could fix it very, very easily. And they've um, refused to do so. Um, and on funding for the violence against women's sector, um, Rishi Sunak announced £19 million, which sounds like a lot of money. But when you look at the scale of the problem, it barely touches the sides. Um, Women's Aid have estimated that it would take about £393 million to provide a safe and secure um, system of refuges across the country. So again, a really massive shortfall. And in the longer term, there really wasn't enough investment in building back the sort of equal and fair recovery that we need. You know, this is a moment for us to reflect the, the pandemic has not just um, exacerbated the inequalities in society, it's really shone a light on them. And this should be taken as an opportunity to actually say we want to do things differently. We want to rebuild our economy in a different way. Um, I know the Chancellor was talking a lot about the level of debt, 
But actually, you know, we came out of the Second World War with incredibly high levels of debt. And we chose that moment to invest in the welfare state and to build the NHS. We were at a similar moment of crisis and we needed intervention with a similar scale of ambition. And unfortunately, we didn't see that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marianne. Wonderful. So, so concise and packing so much in for us to think and debate. So uh, very quickly, I will simply hand over now to Mandu. Mandu, thank you. Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Great. I just I attached my microphone and I wanted to make sure that I'm audible. Um, I'm going to tell you a story uh, about childcare. And it's a story that I've tried to distill into sort of five points or five areas of, of exploration or discussion. And then just so you can follow along, I'm going to paste those five uh, little pointers in the chat. Um, the numbers didn't come, so that's not very helpful, but I'm sure, I'm sure you'll be able to, to keep up with me. Before I begin, I just think it's really important to acknowledge that childcare providers were struggling before COVID, but the crisis has all but crushed the sector. So the first little chapter in this story is entitled, Childcare, like social care, has had virtually no voice in this pandemic. The earlier sector has since the beginning of the pandemic been forgotten and overlooked by the government, along with the parents and children who rely on it. The sector was not prioritized for PPE, testing, vaccines, or financial support. And whilst lots of column inches were written and dedicated to the discussion around schools opening and school or schools closing, childcare had sort of zero negotiating power. You see the difference? I know Belle will get this totally as a veteran trade unionist, but you see the difference between a well-unionized sector and one that is fragmented and fragile? Child sector suffered badly because of that. The Women and Equalities Committee has pointed out that there was zero reference to childcare in the summer or winter statements last year. And I suppose you can't fault the government for its consistency because as Marianne has already pointed out, this today's budget statement was no different. Right, chapter two. Without representation or negotiating power, the childcare sector has been kicked around, strung up and hung out to dry. In the first lockdown, the Department for Education told providers that they could access the job retention scheme without restrictions, as well as their usual public funding. That's what they said on record. Many providers furloughed a large proportion of their staff and closed on that basis. Uh, but then subsequent guidance comes out, again, on the record, which says that providers will actually not, after all, be able to furlough their staff if their salaries were covered by public funding or partly by public funding, and that they would be investigated uh, for duplication of funds if they did. This U-turn meant that providers were faced with redundancies and closures. This bumbling and blundering might be amusing if it wasn't so irresponsible and wasn't guaranteed to create serious long-term consequences. It goes back to the heart of the matter, the broken funding model for childcare, which means that public funding alone does not cover the cost of a child's place and therefore has to be topped up by private fees is at the heart of this issue. So without sufficient support from the government, when there's a drop in demand, i.e. parents being furloughed, parents being in trouble, they can't top up their part of, of, of uh, retaining the child's place, more providers have had to close. We are heading for a serious implosion. Chapter three, 
the impact of neglecting the childcare sector is significant, especially for women. And you know what? I don't know why I've been so gentle and polite. I don't think significant's the right word there. I think catastrophic is probably a more appropriate word there when you look at the economy as a whole. One in four childcare providers in England are expected to permanently close this year. A loss of around 150,000 childcare places. 70% of providers that are still open are running at a financial loss. And the lack of adequate government support means that they are taking out loans in order to keep operating. These loans are going to need to be paid back at some point. And cutting staff, 92% of whom are women, by the way, and increasing fees are the most likely routes. And that's really bad news. Because unlike the rest of Europe, we have no fee caps on childcare in, in, in this country. And in England, the fees are already significantly higher than most countries' counterpart countries. For example, uh, in England, we pay around a third of our income, right, onto childcare expenses if you are a, a family who, who need to send your kids to childcare, compared to 9% in France and 5% in Spain. So there are templates elsewhere for how to do this differently and how to do it better. But no, we're not going down that route. The lack of childcare will have and has already had huge implications for working mothers, which I'm sure Claire will outline in a bit more detail because that's, that's part of what her research uh, over the last year has, has looked into. Chapter four, maybe a little glimmer though of hope. There is a new consciousness around care. I did an event recently with, many of you will know her, Cynthia Enlow, amazing feminist writer, theorist, and professor. And she talked about how the new consciousness around care is, or at least should be, a gift to the feminist movement. And I think she's right in the sense that finally people have seen what is essential and they cannot now unsee it. You'd think, though, that with everything that unfolded last year, it would be harder to justify why such vital services uh, are expected to be delivered on a shoestring by women, uh, overwhelmingly overrepresented are black and minority ethnic women, by the way, um, who are often working in precarious employment and for poverty wages. But we all know that the patriarchy doesn't give up easily, and the status quo has a habit of clinging on for dear life, and today's budget is a case in point. So we have to organize and we have to create political pressure now. Chapter five, we need a care-led recovery. And in the spirit of, of the theme of this, of this series of events, um, shaping the post-COVID world, I'll try and give some suggestions of, of what that could look like in relation to childcare. Basically, we created the Women's Equality Party to put care on the agenda. If you wanna save jobs, which what the government says it wants to do, you have to invest in and reform care. Because building back better for just some is not enough. You have to build back equal. Childcare is critical social infrastructure. It supports children's educational outcomes and life chances. If you get that stuff wrong, it's expensive further down the line. It's effectively a social good. And you know what? If none of that matters to you, if the moral case is not enough, there is a compelling business case, which Marianne has touched on. Childcare enables all parents, but particularly mothers, to engage in the formal economy if they want to. So the Treasury's bottom line will ultimately be served by investing in it. Working mothers will pay more tax, claim less benefits, employers, and therefore, by extension, all of us will benefit from women's talent being unlocked and unleashed. If you really want to turbocharge the economy, 
If you really want to do that and level up, as the government says, focusing on childcare makes economic, social, and heck, even, even political sense. So what needs to be done, some concrete things that I believe would contribute to making a difference. We've got to shore up the sector in ways that require reform. We need a bailout for nurseries, just like has been mooted for the aviation industry and what we did for the banks in the wake of the financial crisis. And not just any old bailout. We need a bailout that moves the sector into public stewardship, protects salaries, lifts them to at least a living wage, plus contributions to costs and overheads. And this leadership doesn't only have to come from central government. The Women's Equality Party, for example, are contesting the London elections. I'm standing for London mayor. That's already been mentioned. And here are two things, little sneak preview that will be in our London manifesto. 33 hours of free childcare is currently available for women. Given the pandemic, though, high street collapse, maternal employment rates, which are through the roof in London even pre-pandemic, What we need to see happen is an extension of those 33 hours, not just to women in work, but to women who are training and seeking employment to move them quicker from being seeking work to being able to actually start work. And uh, Melinda Gates has also um, spoken about this uh, after we first put this out there. Mayors have real power to do really clever things that set an example and show the way sometimes to central government. The mayor of London gets to create 10 deputy mayors. He's got all sorts. I used to work for him. I know many of them personally. We need a deputy mayor for care in London who will look at the whole portfolio of how care manifests across the city, coordinate it, use his influence or her influence where they don't have powers. So thank you for hearing me out. We are nonpartisan, so if anybody wants to steal these ideas, any party wants to steal these ideas, nothing will make me happier. And I'm happy to take any questions uh, when the time comes for those. Thank you so much, Mandu. Again, such a sort of substantive and rich presentation and so hard hitting. So let's move on quickly to Claire. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not sure quite how I follow that, but um, I will try and give a bit of data from our research project to kind of elaborate on some of these things that we have, we're, we're, we've been talking about so far. So I'm going to talk about um, women and why women are losing their jobs in the UK at the moment because of coronavirus. So at the beginning of 2020, before the pandemic hit, 71% of women in the UK were in some form of employment. Now, within three months, that had dropped by five percentage points, and it still hasn't recovered yet. So that's a lot of women who currently aren't in work. And that's also not just in the UK. These are global trends. We're seeing women being four times more likely to lose their jobs in the US, five times more likely to lose their jobs in, in Italy. And that's not even taking into account those from lower middle income countries, many of whom work in the informal economy and have been, have been completely decimated by the COVID pandemic. We're now thinking that up to 435 million women are living in extreme poverty globally. Uh, that's almost 100,000 more than this time last year. So we really need to do something about but the question we were asking is, well, why are the why are women lost their jobs? Why are we, where, where have these numbers come from? And the first reason for this is that we know, and, and some of the excellent work that Mary Ann's team have done has shown that women are more likely to be furloughed. So that already means that women are, uh, you know, taking 80% of the salary they would have been taking otherwise. And many of the women we spoke to in our research said, I can't afford to live on 80% of my salary. Like we need more. Like it's not, it's simply not enough to be able to feed our kids, keep a roof over our heads, whatever it might be. 
Secondly, as, as Marianne's pointed out, many of them work in sectors that have been, dis many of the sectors that have been disproportionately shut down by the, the lockdown policies that have come in disproportionately employ women. So we know the sectors that have been most affected are the accommodation and hospitality sector, retail sector, and the manufacturing sector. Now, those first two are heavily feminized. So therefore, women have either, if they haven't been furloughed, they have simply lost their jobs because of, because of what they do. And the third way women have lost their jobs is that they have absorbed the labor associated with health security policy. The policies that were brought in by the government were focused pretty much entirely on epidemic control and epidemiological data. And as a result of that, there's been a lot of unpaid and unseen labor which goes into actually managing it, which women have absorbed. We know, for example, that globally women have taken on an additional 6.1 hours of unpaid labor and domestic care every day compared to men who have only taken about 4.7 hours of care. So we have seen men increasing how much work they're doing in the home, but nowhere near as much how, how much women have taken on in the home. We also see a difference in the type of work they're doing, and our data showed this quite comprehensively, is that men are doing what we refer to as developmental care. They are you know, playing games with the kids, taking them to the park, doing the homeschooling, right? And it's women who are disproportionately doing non-developmental care, everything that's required to keep kids alive, doing the cooking, making sure there's food in the house, doing the washing. And so you also see a difference in the household bargaining around which activities are happening and who's doing them. And we, you know, the, the next question we had is, well, why are women absorbing this unpaid labor, right? Why is that happening? And we recognize that there are three reasons for this. The first one is the cultural gender norms, right? The gender norms in this country still permeate that childcare in the household is a woman's job. And, you know, even though we've seen great progress towards gender equality, it hasn't been enough to rupture that for most instances. And actually, I was reading a really interesting paper just this morning um, from some psychologists who say that during times of crisis, we see an intensification of conservative social norms. And they've tracked this through um, financial crises through 9-11, and they've done work in the last year, showing that these more conservative, stereotypical norms, which, which include gender, become worse at time of crisis, which is what we've seen here. We then had, you know, as I mentioned before, with feminized sectors that are shut, a lot of women, all women being more women being furloughed, simply women are at home more and available more to take up some of this unpaid labor, which is why we're seeing more women do this. And the third one is simply the gender pay gap. In dual parent households, if you're making a decision about who's going to stay home and look after the kids and who's going to go to virtual work, you're going to pick the person who, who earns the most to you know, keep, getting, keep getting the salary. So it becomes down to a very practical decision around earnings. And at the same time, and as, we, as I'm sure everyone or many people on this call know, this was at the same time where the UK government decided to suspend pay gap reporting during the crisis because it wasn't deemed a necessary activity at the time of crisis. Now, we're, I'm very pleased that's been reintroduced, although it's still not actually active as yet. And I want to think a bit about what effect this might have or currently is having. So we know this is having a significant effect right now in the, in, in the immediate term. We, many of the women we have, have interviewed have basically just told us about, you know, they're completely at their bandwidth, right? They can't cope at the moment. Everything is a struggle. They're getting up at four in the morning to work before, you know, the kids get up and then they're working late at the night to try and get their, their paid employment done as well as their unpaid employment. And this is particularly acute amongst the single mothers we spoke to who simply have no other 
option but to continue to do this, many of whom haven't been eligible or able to seek furlough. And this is having a massive impact on mental health. The mental health data is globally quite compelling now, showing that the, men, the, the acute mental health impacts of COVID is disproportionately affecting women, and particularly women who have children under the age of 11. And so we really need to recognise this and ensure that there is support there. However, I'm also quite worried about the longer term implications of, of this crisis. And, and Mandu's highlighted many of these, uh, uh, you know, thinking about childcare. But we know that there are long-term economic impacts of crises events and also of health crises events. Now, now research by, like by myself and by colleagues of mine, we've looked at the impact of outbreaks in previous uh, you know, health emergencies. We looked at it during Ebola, during Zika. And these are really have had significantly long-term crises. So actually work by colleagues at LSE has shown that post uh, the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, uh, a year later, after the crisis has ended, 63% of men have returned to work compared to only 17% of women. And in, in the Zika outbreak in Brazil, now, five years after the pandemic, 90% of women who had children born with Converter Zika syndrome are still out of work. So this is having long-term impacts. So I think what I wanted to say by this is this isn't new, right? These effects were well-researched and evidenced before this crisis, and the government could have done things to mitigate against them. And in fact, we told them that. We spoke to the government earlier in this pandemic and said, here's our research from previous pandemics. This is what's going to happen if you don't think about gender. And the response we got from them was, Liberia is not London. It won't happen here. We will be fine. This is, you know, gender equality isn't a problem here in the UK. It's something that happens elsewhere. So I think we really need to, you know, push the government on this. With all the rhetoric that's happening about this being unprecedented and you couldn't prepare for it, I don't buy it. We have plenty of evidence to say. And we need to make sure that we can, you know, push forward for this to be able to make sure that future pandemic response plans are gender mainstreamed, that have this recognition of the inequalities. And obviously not just with, with gender, but recognizing all the marginalized groups and all the social inequalities which have been exposed by this pandemic. Thank you so much, Claire. And another really wide-ranging and taking of our view to the global scene with some very you know instructively similar lessons from the ones we've heard about the UK so thanks so much and and Belle over thank you um, <clears throat> um I'm, I'm coming in off the back of all the fantastic comments that have already been made and quite a few things that have already been covered um with the budget however the devil the devil is in the detail and we've talked a lot about some of the things that were announced but one thing the chancellor did not announce from the dispatch box was the fact that the government have effectively said they're going to cut four billion per day uh, from for, for per year sorry from day-to-day -day public spending now we all know what the impact of of cuts to public spending um are on the most disadvantaged in in our society and definitely the massive impact that it has on women and we can see that from the past decade of austerity and i suppose we need to um stop asking ourselves why women are always left out in the cold because it's, it, it becomes clearer and clearer with every piece of legislation that's passed and with every single budget um, that goes past every year. And it's that equalities are not an integral part of policymaking. We've made legislation, um, you know, we've made so many interventions, but again and again, uh, with all of those gains, uh, making sure that we're meeting our equalities duties is always an afterthought. 
and in in a situation of, of crisis and we've seen that definitely over the pandemic um the government have secured ways in which to toss these these measures out of the window and that has a, a massive massive impact moving forward now we can see that with furlough has been extended but we know that many women have lost their jobs over this period of time and because the government have um made it almost a, a routine to announce extensions at the very last minute this hasn't been able to prevent that uh, the one thing and I'll, I'll start with well towards the beginning one thing that could be welcome is the is the um extended self-employment scheme which actually brings 600,000 more people um underneath uh, the, the banner to, to be able to qualify uh, which is good uh, because there are many self-employed uh, childminders who weren't able to access it at the beginning and and you know steps steps have been made to make these grants available to them but overall as you've heard already there've been no uh provisions made for the childcare sector or social care um and there there wasn't any in the summer summer economic statement or the winter economic plan and now the spring budget so and and and, and that's just an absolute disgrace we know how much that impacts women we've we've also touched on um you know society and sectors where there there are large amounts of women so the hair and beauty sector has been one of the worst hit in in the pandemic and um you know many have been advocating for targeted sport support for this particular sector um including a reduction on vat and services uh, but this doesn't ha- doesn't seem to have been included in the budget um we also see and 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 this was you know goes right across um different sectors and 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 showed when you know certain areas were allowed to reopen and some had to stay closed um male dominated sectors were always very very heavily supported uh, throughout the the pandemic and uh, you know the fuel duty freeze and extension on vat reductions for alcohol sales help sectors that are typically male dominated uh, pub owners truck drivers and others alike and the follow this follows with the ongoing theme of the pandemic recovery which has seen investment uh, pumped pumped into these male dominated sectors uh it, it the, the 20 pound per week universal credit uplift um that was announced and extended for a further uh 6 months um you know this hasn't been extended extended to legacy be- benefits and evidence suggests that more women are in receipt of legacy benefits than men so yet another uh slap in the face and um on domestic abuse we've seen the the additional 90 million towards tackling domestic domestic violence but this falls far far short of the 393 million including the 173 million for refugees that women's aid for example estimate is needed to provide sufficient funding for safe and a, a safe and sustainable national network um of women's domestic abuse services and i think you know these things are announced with great fanfare and we're meant to you know clap our hands um excitedly for anything that sounds uh, remotely progressive because and, and it's almost as if we're taught to have very very low expectations as to what we're meant to expect from from our government now these all sound in some places like very very large numbers and like many things have been done but the reality is we have to have a base level of what we're meant to expect from our government and this budget has not exceeded that in any way shape or form and it hasn't exceeded it for women and i think that's that's really really important um and and again just going back to the idea that equalities are not an integral part of policy making this makes such a mockery of all of the work that have been done over uh, a number of years so i um and i think about um 
the financial packages again um, that went through the pandemic and, and you know they didn't carry out equality impact assessments on those uh, the impact of lockdown on women hasn't been assessed and so many women have fallen through the cap cracks women on maternity leave have been wrongly placed on sick leave due to inconsistent guidance workers on insecure contracts were less likely to have their income topped up by their uh, by their employers and you know the women and equality select committees actually re recommended that the government conduct and publish um equality impact assessments on the self-employment scheme and, and and other schemes so I think I think that has to that has to be done as 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 you know an absolute base for every single piece of legislation going forward and you know more and more we're seeing challenges by organizations uh, being taken to well the government being taken to court over a number of different things and I remember uh, back in 2010 um, when I I'm trying to remember it was the Fawcett Society the Fawcett Society took the government to 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 court over um, failure to comply with the 1975 Sex Discrimination Act and, and the Equalities Act to eliminate unlawful discrimination. And this was over the budget that they had then when they first put austerity in place. Now, um, you know, the, the judge at the time refused to, to, to grant a judicial review, but, you know, it was very, very murky, the grounds on which he did that. He said the society had delayed too long in making its application and that, you know, such proceedings would have had a very significant impact. And he also ruled that it was unarguable because there was no pro prospect of a court declaring the budget unlawful. And again, I have to ask myself why. If um, equality is our law, and the government itself have acted unlawfully, then, you know, I think it's absolutely within the court's rights to, to say that this budget or any other budget is, is unlawful. And um, I would like to see, particularly in a climate where the courts are more, more willing to challenge uh, the government at this stage, uh, perhaps another organisation taking the government to task. Uh, there is no point in equalities legislation if it is not abided by. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bella. I think we've had four just extraordinarily uh, rich and varied uh, contributions and, and also which have been very helpful because although they've covered a huge range, they've brought out some, some really shared themes, I think. I mean, both the way in which uh, pre-existing structural and, and maybe not so absolutely obvious gendered uh, issues issues in the labour market and society get magnified in this sort of situation. That really shouldn't be... Uh, a surprise to any government because if I remember right a pre you know some years ago the women's budget group was one of the the organizations that showed that it was actually of all the things that new labor tried to do for women it was the minimum wage that had among the biggest impacts of women and that tells us something not just about the minimum wage but about the the labor market more generally um, the strength the continuing strength the great challenge for us social scientists as well as activists of cultural norms of gender norms very very hard to tackle and then this maddening business of uh, right on rhetoric with no real money behind it and I, I think these are all things that we all want to take up we've got some fantastic questions coming through I've got four so far and I'm going to take them in pairs if that's okay I hope that we'll have time for at least two or three rounds and I'll simply read the questions two at a time and ask the the panel if they'd like to come in don't feel you have to if you don't want to but I'm sure uh, at least one of you, maybe more, will have something to say about each of these. So um, 
First of all, from, and I hereby apologize if I mispronounce anybody's name, Cecilia Portabales uh, from LSE Social Policy, who's based in Argentina, asked, uh, and we have touched on this, why is the childcare allowance only 32 hours a week when any full-time job is at a minimum 35 hours? How does that affect women? And then uh, I think perhaps a, a question for Claire, Dr. Araf Alhaj from Yemen, asks whether COVID-19 offers an opportunity for rethinking strategic gender responsive development and how might that be achieved? Excellent and very difficult questions. I'm gonna open them to the panel. Andu. I think I managed to unmute myself uh, slightly ahead of Marianne, so I'll, I'll dive in. Um, I'm not feeling very patient today, partly as a result of um, you know, how disappointing the budget was. And so this may sound like a flippant answer to the question about childcare hours, but I think it's the kind of thing that's an example of how things go awry when you don't have enough people round the table, properly represented in government, who are able to advise and ensure that social policy is actually a realistic reflection of what people's needs are. Because it doesn't have to be that way. It's a political choice, you know, some of the decisions that get made. And there are other countries in the world where childcare provision looks different, is different, and serves the population, certainly serves women better. So unless Marianne's got some insight that I don't have, I think it's just um, an, a symbol, an example of how we have a system of government and a party in power that does not um, take these issues seriously enough. There's no need for it to be like this. We could have appropriate provision of hours that would make the difference for women and serve our economy better. I think I think Mandu's absolutely right. I mean, you know, another question would be, why do the free childcare hours kick in a couple of years after maternity leave ends? You know, what's what's the basis of a policy where you have a year's maternity leave and then your free childcare hours come in later on? I mean, I think the idea behind it was this was never intended to be about free childcare. This was about a kind of a subsidy towards childcare costs because successive governments haven't wanted to recognise that childcare, um, as Mandu said, is is fundamental infrastructure. Um, you know, we we have this bizarre system of kind of private childcare providers, a mixture of, you know, big chains and small local providers and some still public providers. You know, why don't we have a, a nursery in every community in the same way as we have a primary school? Why don't we recognise that this is just as fundamental um, and that childcare should be free and universally available and, and locally provided? Um, and I think Mandy's right. I mean, it's about the priorities of people in power. Um, and it's about the fact that for a long time, childcare was very much seen as a personal problem. I mean, I remember years ago in the 1997 election doing a focus group with women about political issues they faced. And nobody mentioned childcare as a political issue. But both before and after the, the um, focus group, they all talked about childcare, the problems they had in getting there, how they were going to have to get back early to get to their babysitter. But they just seen it as purely a problem for them personally and not something that they would even expect the government to do anything about. So we've moved on a bit since then, but we haven't got we haven't got far enough. Thank you. Belle, did you want to come in on that before I go to Claire on the uh, the question from the colleague in Yemen? No, no. So Claire, can I bring you in on the question on development? 
Sure, absolutely. Thank you for that question. It's really important. Um, I think I've been really um, pleased about how much attention gender has got in this outbreak at the global level, not necessarily at the national level. But we have seen significant strides by, by the UN, by the UN Security Council, by the WHO, by the World Bank, the IMF, the ILO. They're all recognising the gender impacts of this. And I think that's really a really good step. And I think it's cut through a lot of lethargy around gender that's been in the development sector for quite a long time. And now the cynic in me says it's because it's affecting everybody and it's affecting you know, donor states and it's affecting women in the global north, which is why we're having this conversation. And I, 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 I don't like that's the reason we've got it there. But if it's got it there, then, you know, let's let's work with it. But I think there's two issues, which is that, you know, we all know that development activities only work with the key buy-in of member states and uh, you know global actors aren't enough to, to inspire change and I think we have to make sure that governments are doing more because this is where the block seems to be in global health policy making at least it's you know governments failing to implement these policies which is why they don't happen and the second thing is the way that gender has been talked about by all these organizations many of them have you know raised gender as an issue but it's very narrow terms they've talked about gender-based violence or access to maternity services and i'm not trying to say those aren't important but the issues around gender in this pandemic are much more wide-reaching and we're still having quite narrow approaches to thinking about this so i think we need to push you know global organizations a bit further on that and also push national governments to implement any policies that come out Thank you, Claire. So I'm going to actually take three questions now, uh, partly because we've got to stop very promptly, as you know, because the festival is a very packed uh, schedule, but also because uh, the next two really are very closely uh, linked. So um, the next one is, is described as being primarily for Mary Marianne uh, from Adele Gooch, uh, who asks, what measures would make this a real Marshall Plan star recovery? In other words, there's a real re reworking of the social and economic order post-COVID. And then sort of related to that, maybe slightly less difficult to answer, uh, what's the one biggest change that government could make immediately to support women in the pandemic? So that's sort of the first cluster. And then a, a question from Helena Robert Campos, who's a student in the, in the gender department, asked uh, two, two related questions. What do you expect to be the impact of Brexit in the socioeconomic recovery plans of the UK and how will that affect women? And then more investment care is needed to get women back into employment, but that isn't enough to ensure what sector and which work conditions these women will have when they're employed. What else do we need to ensure that? So there's some very challenging questions there. Who would like to start off? Um, I'll, I'll answer one of that. I did skip the last round. <laughs> um, just to say, in terms of what the government could do immediately, I, I go back to what I said about equality impact assessment, so that it's not just a nice kind of review of, of you know, whether or not the policy would be nice and what it's fundamentally looking at whether or not it would impact not just anyone. We're talking about women, over 50% of the population, and, and our government continuously makes policies without considering how it's going to impact such a large group of people. It then goes on um, to, to impact other disadvantaged groups. We look at how much um, disabled people have particularly been affected uh, over over the course of the pandemic. So that's the first thing. Going back to a time um, 
when you know governments actually equality impact assessed their 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 policies and their their their, their budgets and all of their legislation that actually acted on it. So again, not a nice piece of paper that tells you all of the things that are going to be wrong, but say we're just going to do them anyway, but actually taking them into, into consideration. Um, and, and that would be my main thing. That would change so much in my view. Thank you, Belle. Uh, Mandu. Um, I'll, I'll have a pop at the Brexit question. Um, I suppose the first thing that springs to mind for me is look Look, looking back to pre-pandemic, um, we had a social care sector that was really, really struggling, really, really creaking at the seams, over 120,000 vacancies. And that was before it was really put through its paces in the context of this crisis. Um, a, a social care system that's sort of so dysfunctionally organized that you have some of the wealthiest, and they're all men as it happens in Britain, owning these big kind of social care empires, but the workforce um, at the bottom being paid close to poverty wages, um, zero hours contracts, and significant numbers of um, migrant workers, including European migrant workers, uh, making up that workforce. And so with Brexit and the thresholds that are put in for, um, you know, who can come in and who can work, which jobs are classified as essential, which jobs are classified as skilled or unskilled. I think we're going to have a massive, massive problem in the social care sector once the impact of that free movement of, of, of people, particularly women, to do that low paid work in, in, in the sector starts to bite. I mean, there's a part of me which thinks maybe that will accelerate a, uh, an appreciation of how dysfunctional and wrong it was that the sector was designed and set up and, and propped up by um, women doing backbreaking work that's really essential but, but, but very underpaid. But I think that's the first thing that springs to mind. And um, I haven't heard a peep out of this government. In fact, the only things I have heard on that front are things that make me more concerned, doubling down of hostile environment um, rather than thinking, you know what? We really need to make sure that these systems function properly and acknowledging the contribution um, migrant workers, wherever they come from, make. So that, for me, is the big flashing scarlet red light that needs to be taken seriously. Absolutely. Marianne, would you like, Marianne, would you like to come in? On the kind of Marshall Plan. I mean, because one of the things I would say is, although... Um, the Chancellor made great play of the amount of money that has been spent over the last year on this pandemic. And, you know, a lot of money has been spent. The The scale of the um, intervention to um, rebuild the economy is falls well short of what's needed. I mean, if you look at the US, um, Joe Biden is proposing a, a stimulus of um, over 8% of GDP. Um, and we're looking at something much more like 2%. Um, we we're not just dealing with the after effects of the pandemic. We're also dealing with a looming climate emergency, which frankly is going to have effects that are going to make COVID look like a walk in the park. Um, and we have to take seriously the fact that if we don't take action now, we're going to have serious problems. But that is the moment to say, OK, what we want to do is we want to reset the economy. 
We don't want to kind of build on the shaky foundations of what we had before. You know, Mandu's talked about the problems in, in both the childcare and the social care sector and the way they're structured. We have an economy that has been based for too long on kind of inequality and low wages um, and um, exploitation of people working in really difficult and vulnerable, you know, doing essential jobs, but often with almost no job security. Um, and that has all sorts of long term Im impacts, not just for people socially, but also for the economy itself. It's, it's not sustainable. So we need significant investment in in renewable energy, in building new green homes, social housing rather than um, private housing, um, in public transport, in retrofitting existing housing stock also investment in care and that needs to go hand in hand with some other changes to deal with some of the other problems we identified i mean claire talked about the um uh social norms about who does care a lot of those norms are set around um the period when a, a child is born because we have leave policies that entitle mothers to a year maternity leave and fathers to only two weeks you know we actually need to look at those countries where care is shared slightly more evenly there's nowhere where it's shared completely evenly and those are all countries where men actually have decent periods of paternity leave after the baby is born and particularly periods where they're responsible for looking after a child on their own and that's the point at which you can you know patterns get set expectations get set um, and they're very very difficult to break thereafter so we need to look not just at at those sorts of economic things, but also things like leave policy as well. And I put a link in the chat to our Commission on a Gender Equal Economy report, which covers a lot of this. Thank you, Marianne. And I'm going to leap in before Claire speaks because I can see there, are, I'm going to try and sneak in a couple more questions. We've only got about three minutes, but um, they're, they're great questions. And one of them I think is going to bring you in, Claire. And, and Marianne, thank you very much also for alerting everybody to the fact that there are some really useful links and references coming up in the chat from Marianne and others. So um, the last two questions, Aneri Nanavati, who is a, a MSc student at LSE Health Policy, uh, how can we prepare our health services for the impact this pandemic is gonna have on mental health for women and in all the marginalized communities who've been most affected? We haven't touched so much on mental health yet. So I think that's a really, really important question. And then finally, from Facebook Live, from Angela Meyer, uh, at the University of French Polynesia, one of the upsides of Zoom world. So wonderful to have people with us from all around the world. Since schools are being closed in many jurisdictions, children have to be educated at home. Should the government not consider giving non-salary earning mothers an allowance or salary for their educational work uh, prepared at home? So snap, and I think, I think it will have to be very, very quick, one or two responses to those. Claire, would you like to go first? Sure, I will come in on the first question just very briefly, which is absolutely we need to prepare our health systems more. And I think it's not just about mental health. I think it's about a whole range of ways that we know women engage in health systems differently to men, uh, not just uh, you know maternity services and SRH services. But we know, for example, women are more likely to be the caregivers taking children to pediatric services as well and, and routine vaccination services globally. So we need to recognise how that happens. Um, I think you know one of the travesties of this pandemic globally has been the diversion of all health system funds to COVID. 
and we're seeing, and this is a trend that we've seen in previous health emergencies, a you know, complete distortion of health systems. And you see the impacts being really vivid, right? You know, more women died of um, maternal complications during the Ebola pandemic than people died of Ebola. I mean, it's really stark. And so we have to come out with a way of ring fencing certain parts of our health system that can't be distorted at time of crisis and making sure that those services continue and thinking innovatively about how to do so safely. So in the, in the Ebola outbreak in Democratic Republic of Congo in 2019, they moved all maternity services into unused schools as schools were shut. And that was a way of trying to create safe spaces where women would continue to go where they didn't feel a risk of disease transmission. And it's a relatively simple intervention and we need to get, get better at doing more innovative things like that. Thank you, Claire. And does anybody want one final word on those women so often forgotten in policy debates, non-salary earning women? I was actually going to say, Nicola, I think we should have a universal basic income for all. I think if the pandemic has proved anything, it's that, um, you know, people need uh, the basic funds just to live in a country as rich as this, even with the economic troubles that we're facing, we're still the sixth largest economy in the world and a universal basic income would go a long way to stop the levels of of poverty um, that we're seeing, particularly um, amongst women. Well, thank you. I mean, if I if we could have choreographed this, I don't think we could have done better because our panelists have just been superb. It's been such a pleasure to have the opportunity for me and I'm sure for all of you in the audience and uh, to listen to Marianne, to Belle, Mandu and Claire uh, to have the benefit of their expertise. Thank you all, all of you attending uh, to, for taking part. Thank you especially to all of you on the panel and the events team uh, for setting it up so nicely. Uh, for those of you uh, attending, please check out the rest of the festival programme. It's a fantastic week of events uh, and uh, some of them are live, some are pre-recorded, but it's a fantastic archive of, of really expert commentary on the state of uh, the, the world at this particular extraordinary point in history. <laughs>